When your enemy falls, do not be glad. And when he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice, lest the Lord see it and it be evil in his eyes and turn his anger away from him. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be jealous of the wicked. For there will be no future for the evil one. The lamp of the wicked will go out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate with those who change, for suddenly their disaster will rise. And who knows the upheaval that comes from both of them? These also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality and judgment is not good. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, people will curse him, nations will be indignant with him. But those who reprove the wicked, it will be pleasant. And, the good, and a good blessing will come upon them. He kisses, the lip, he kisses the lips who responds with right words. Establish your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field, and afterward you shall build your house. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, nor deceive with your lips. Do not say, as he did to me, so I shall do to him. I will render to the man according to his work. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking a heart of wisdom. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Nettles have covered its surface and its stone wall has been torn down. And I beheld and I set my heart upon it. I saw I received discipline, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 17 through 34. Now turn to the book of Daniel. We're just at the beginning of our study of this pretty familiar book of the Bible to many of us. At least some parts of it are uh, very familiar to us. We also have really significant pr prophetic passages that we'll be looking at in this book. And uh, as we began our study last week, we saw how this book of Daniel fits into the Bible, how it fits into the history of Judah and the history of Babylon. So today we're going to tackle the first seven verses of chapter one. Chapter one as a whole is going to tell us the setting or give us the setup for the rest of the book. It introduces us to the key people and circumstances in which they find themselves. Specifically, in these first seven verses, we're going to find Daniel, the key character of our book. And we're going to find his situation, the situation that he's in, the context, the circumstances that he is in. And uh, we're going to find that Daniel is a captive. He is a hostage. 
which you can see in the title that I've given to this message, Daniel's Captivity. And as we consider Daniel's captivity, I want you to remember the day of Daniel, as we look here in Daniel chapter 1, is a dark, dark day. Remember, this dark day that Daniel faces here in this chapter is in sharp contrast to the three decades that have just went by. Three decades where King Josiah ruled Judah, a good king, and God had blessed Judah because of King Josiah. All of that is now changing. And Daniel would have been about 10 to 12 years old when King Josiah died. King Josiah died in 609 B.C. Our passage is going to take place in 605 B.C., so just a couple years later. So when King Josiah died, Daniel would have been able to remember that event. He would have been able to remember the days before the death of King Josiah, but now the days are going to be very different. Things are going to change Things are going to be hard. Things are even going to be dark. One of the lessons we got to learn from the book of Daniel, one of the lessons we have to teach ourselves over and over again is that when it comes to pleasing God, when it comes to living for the Lord, your circumstances just don't matter. They do not matter. Your circumstances can be good or bad. Your circumstances do not determine how you are to live. What you ought to be, what you ought to do, is the same, whether things are going well or things are going bad. We ought to live pleasing to the Lord always. We ought to live for the Lord in all areas of our life. So that's a lesson, that's one of the key lessons from this entire book. We're not controlled by our circumstances. Our relationship to God is based on his word and who he is, not on what's going on around us. So the first thing I want us to see here as we begin looking at these verses in verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, I want us to see the fulfillment of prophecy, the punishment of Judah. The fulfillment of prophecy, the punishment of Judah. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. It says in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house. Of his God. So the events described here in this verse are a partial fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment of a prophecy. Now, hold your finger here, stick something in your Bible here, and turn back to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 10. 2 Kings chapter 21. Verse 10. 
by going back to 2 Kings chapter 21, we're going to see the prophecy that is being fulfilled or beginning to be fulfilled in Daniel chapter 1. So 2 Kings chapter 21, beginning with verse 10. It says, Then the Lord spoke by the hand of his slaves, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has done evil more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. He wipes it and turns it upside down. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hand of their enemy, and they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight, and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin, sin with which he made Judah sin and doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So here is the prophecy that is being fulfilled. God tells Manasseh and he tells Judah back here in 2 Kings chapter 21, because of your sin, I am bringing judgment on you and I will remove you from the land. Now let's turn over a couple pages to chapter 24, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And here we're going to see the connection of this prophecy that I just read with Jehoiakim and the days of Daniel. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he, Jehoiakim, turned and rebelled against him. The Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Armenians, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. In other words, the Lord's not going to overlook this sin. So as we look at our passage in Daniel chapter 1, go ahead and turn back there. As we look at this passage in Daniel chapter 1, we understand 
that the event that is taking place here in the first seven verses of Daniel chapter 1 did not come out of the blue, but rather it is grounded in a specific historical and prophetic context. The events here in these first seven verses are the consequence of sin, the sin of Manasseh and the sin of the people of Judah. The sins of Manasseh were a kind of capstone on all of the sins of Judah from the time they left Egypt up to the time of Jehoiakim. And God is not going to relent. He's not going to change his mind. Judgment is coming. So notice in verse 1 that the fulfillment of this prophecy begins during the reign of Jehoiakim. This is 605 B.C. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So King Jehoiakim reigned from 609 B.C. to 597 B.C. That's 11 years. The general description that the Bible gives of Jehoiakim, and I give you the passage, passages there in your notes so you can look this up later. Don't turn there now. But the general description that the Bible gives of King Jehoiakim is that he's a wicked king. He's a wicked king who came unexpectedly to the throne. He wasn't the eldest son of Josiah. He's a, he was probably the second oldest his older brother was Jehoahaz. And so Jehoiakim comes unexpectedly to the throne, and he will always be subservient to a foreign power, whether it's Egypt or Babylon. So that's who Jehoiakim is in a nutshell. It's also helpful for us to understand a little bit about the ancestors of Jehoiakim to understand who he is. So Jehoiakim's uh, great-grandfather is Manasseh. The Manasseh we just read about, the Manasseh who's the reason that God is bringing judgment on Judah, that is Jehoiakim's great-grandfather. Uh, Manasseh reigned 55 years as king. So five and a half decades as a wicked king. Under his reign, the temple was desecrated. He moved in idols to foreign gods into the temple. They did away with the Bible. They did away with the Hebrew scriptures. They stored it away, put it in the back of the temple somewhere. Nobody bothered with it. His reign can be described as one as pure paganism. His son, Manasseh's son, and that would be uh, Jehoiakim's grandfather, is King Amon. Amon. He only reigned two years, so he didn't have much of an impact, but he followed in the ways of Manasseh, his father. After Amon comes King Josiah. King Josiah is the exact opposite of Manasseh. The exact opposite. He was a good king. He reigned for 31 years. Jeremiah and Zephaniah were prophets during his reign. He restored true worship of the Lord and repaired the temple. And after 57 years of ignoring the Bible, ignoring the Torah, it was found, stored away in the temple. And Josiah had it brought out 
and read. And he restored the nation's devotion to the Lord. That's important. King Josiah comes right before King Jehoiakim. Under King Josiah, the nation returns in its devotion to the Lord. However, King Josiah dies in an untimely untimely death when he goes out to fight the Egyptians. So as we look at our passage here this morning in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, we see that Judah is at both a political and a spiritual low. Politically, they have been weakened by Egypt, who killed Jehoiakim's father, Josiah. So they're in a transitional period. period. And Babylon is a growing world empire, and they have their sights set on Judah. So politically, they're weakened. And spiritually, we have a weakness that has come about. Because Jehoiakim has rejected the good ways of King Josiah, his father, and has adopted and accepted the wicked ways of his great-grandfather, Manasseh. So the events we are looking at here were prophesied. They were prophesied during the reign of wicked King Manasseh. They were postponed during the reign of good King Josiah. And now they are going to start to be fulfilled during the reign of wicked King Jehoiakim. So let me ask you a question. Does God keep his word? Absolutely, he keeps his word. Even when his word involves discipline and correction, he still keeps his word. Secondly, I want us to see here that the fulfillment of this prophecy happens through a Gentile agent, a Gentile agent. His name is Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. Hopefully by the time we get done this series, we'll all be able to spell Nebuchadnezzar correctly, okay? Took me a long time. Nebuchadnezzar. Now, who is this Nebuchadnezzar? Well, let's think about his name here for a little bit. Last week, I was asked a good question about some of these strange names that we see in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And uh, the strangeness of some of these names can be explained by the fact that in the ancient world, names meant something. They meant something, especially when we're talking about important or notable people. Their names meant something. We don't really see this in English at all. And so we have the name Nebuchadnezzar, and his name means... Nabu protects the eldest son or protects the firstborn. Nabu protects the firstborn. Nabu, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebu, Nabu, it's the same, same word. Nabu was a god in ancient Mesopotamia. He was a god both to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians. Uh, this god had a father. His father's name was Marduk. Marduk or Bel, B-E-L. He had two names, Marduk or Bel. Marduk was the number one god. Nebu was the number two god in Babylon. And he was the god of scribes, literacy, and wisdom. So if you ever wonder, why do 
these figures that are wise men, that are supposed to be wise advisors ever, why do they play such a key role in the book of Daniel? Well, in some sense, it's related to what Nebuchadnezzar viewed as important. And his name kind of explains it. He's named after the God of wisdom, the Babylonian God of wisdom. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's name. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the general of the Babylonian army when it defeated the Assyrians and Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish in 609 B.C. Okay, or 605 B.C., excuse me. They defeated them at Carchemish in 605 B.C., but he was the general. Nebuchadnezzar was also the crown prince of Babylon. He was the crown prince of Babylon. His father, Nabopolassar, was king when Nebuchadnezzar moved into Judah. His father was still the king when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem. And we also see here in verse 2, in verse 2, look at the beginning of verse 2, that Nebuchadnezzar was the instrument that the Lord God was going to use to bring judgment upon Judah. It says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord is the one who is working this out. The Lord is the one who is using Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his will. By the way, you, you'll notice in your Bible, depending on what translation you use, some of, our, some of our translations, when it's talking about the Lord Yahweh, It'll capitalize L-O-R-D. There'll be in all caps when you see that in the Old Testament. When you see Lord capitalized with just the L, then lowercase O-R-D, it's a different word. It's the word Adonai. And what you see here in verse 2 is that God is referred to as Adonai. Now, one of the other meanings for Adonai besides Lord is Master. Master. And that's important. Matter of fact, Adonai is Daniel's favorite way to address God. Calls him Adonai. Master. So, in a sense, what we're seeing here by using this word Adonai is that Nebuchadnezzar is the servant and God is the master. God is the one who is using Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is not the one who will be using God. And we'll see this thought in Nebuchadnezzar's mind go back and forth throughout the first part of this book. But God's the one who is the master. God is the one working behind the scenes to orchestrate this event just as it was prophesied, just as he said it would happen. And we'll see God do this not just with Nebuchadnezzar. We'll see God do this with King Cyrus, King Artaxerxes, and then the Romans, all in this book of the Bible. I want you to remember, I want you to remember, God's method for accomplishing his will is to use men. That's how God accomplishes his will and plan in the world. He uses men. He uses us to accomplish his will. God could have just spoken and it would have been accomplished. 
Hope everybody agrees with that. God can just speak it and it happens. Speak it and it comes into existence. He could do that. But God uses men to accomplish his will. Thirdly here, letter C there in your outline, I want us to notice that this fulfillment of prophecy results in the desecration of the temple and deportation. The desecration of the temple and deportation. Again, we're still in verse 2, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, notice, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. What is described in these verses is not uh, the total or complete fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy given to Manasseh. It's only the beginning of the fulfillment. But notice, even as this prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled, there's two immediate results from it. Number one, the desecration of the temple. And number two, the deportation of the people. We'll get to that point here in a little bit, but first I want us to consider the desecration of the temple. So we see in verse 2 that the activity of Nebuchadnezzar is focused on the temple, on the house of God. And notice here that Nebuchadnezzar removes some of the articles, some of the articles from the house of God. And we don't know what these articles or vessels were, but what seems to be clear is that these vessels were part of worshiping God. They were part of worshiping the God of Israel, uh, uh, Yahweh, the one true and living God. So Nebuchadnezzar goes in there, he goes to the temple, and he takes some of the articles out. He leaves some there, but he takes some out, and he takes these articles with him, and it says that he carried, uh, that he carried them into the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar is just another name for the land of Babylon, okay? Shinar is just another name for the land of Babylon, but it's an important name. It's an important name. Two passages tell us the importance of Shinar. So just write these down. We're not going to turn to them. I'll just summarize them. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 2, Genesis chapter 11, verse 2, it mentions Shinar. Now, those of you who have just completed reading the book of Genesis, all of a sudden you're counting chapters on your uh, fingers in your mind, and you're going chapter 1 and 2, that's creation. Chapter 3, that's uh, fall. Chapter 4, that's the expansion of sin. Chapter 5, everybody's dying because of sin. You get to chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Who's that? That's Noah. We, then we're introduced to Noah, and what comes after Noah? The Tower of, of what? Bab, Babel, 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 Babylon, get it? So that is where Shinar is. Shinar is the land of Babylon. The Tower of Babel was built there. Now the second passage I want you to write down is Zechariah chapter 5, verse 11. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 11. In that passage, we have a description of the Lord removing wickedness from the land of Israel. And the picture that we're given is that there's a basket, 
And the, there's a woman who, who pictures wickedness in Israel. The woman is put into the basket and a lead lid, I had to say that slowly so I didn't get those words mixed up, a lead lid seals the basket and two stork-like creatures come by, pick the basket up, and they take the basket to the land of Shinar, where there is a place prepared for it. So they take the basket that's filled with the wickedness of the Jews, and they take it to Shinar. And both of these references, whether we're talking about Genesis 11 or, or uh, Zechariah chapter 5, Shinar is a place of wickedness and sin. It's a place of rebellion in Genesis chapter 11, and it's the place where sin dwells in Zechariah chapter 5. Now, Nebuchadnezzar takes these articles from the temple and he takes them back to the temple of his God and the treasury of his God. And what we need to see is the symbolism that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to communicate with that act. Nebuchadnezzar is sending a message to all of Judah. Your God can't help you. Your God can't help you. My God is more powerful than your God. I was able, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was able to come into your capital city, enter your temple, and I was able to take whatever I wanted out from your temple and take it back to the temple of my God, and you couldn't do anything about it. If your God was so powerful, he would have been able to stop me. So when Nebuchadnezzar does this, it's a symbolic act of him saying, I'm stronger than your God. I'm stronger than you. My God is greater than your God. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes into Judah. He subjugates the Jews, which is all a fulfillment of prophecy. And as a result of this fulfillment, the temple is desecrated. And so next we'll see the second result of this prophecy, and that's the deportation of the population. The deportation of the population. Verse 3. Verse 3. It says, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. So here's the second result of the fulfillment of this prophecy, this deportation of the population. Now, the Bible records for us three deportations of the population of Judah at this time in their history. The deportation that we see here, this is the first deportation, 605 BC. First deportation, Daniel, 605 BC. The second deportation is found in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 6 through 17. 2 Kings 24, verses 6 through 17, where Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he removes all the articles of the temple. And almost the entire royal court and nobility is taken. Only the poorest are left in the land, and Zedekiah is placed as king. 
The second deportation takes place in 597 B.C. 597 B.C. Ezekiel, Ezekiel is taken in this deportation. The prophet Ezekiel. The third and final deportation is found in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 25 and 26. This third deportation takes place in the ninth year of Zedekiah, and this would be 586 B.C. 586 B.C. This is when Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem. He utterly destroys the temple, nothing left of it, and he burns the city. He destroys the city of Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back in 586 B.C. and destroys Jerusalem, and he destroys the temple. Now, there are people who are still left there. But they go against Nebuchadnezzar, and they know he's going to come back, and he'll wipe out the population, and so they flee to Egypt, which they're not supposed to do. They take off to Egypt, and that's the third deportation. It's kind of a self-imposed deportation. And uh, the person associated with that is Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet. So you got first deportation, Daniel, 605 B.C., second deportation, Ezekiel, uh, 597 B.C., third deportation, uh, Jeremiah, 586 B.C. So these three deportations fulfill the prophecy to Manasseh to empty the land of the Jews. God is pushing all the Jews out of the land. And so the prophecy that begins to be fulfilled here will ultimately be fulfilled in 597. So let's look at our verse here. So in regards to this deportation, we see in the first part of verse 3 that the oversight is given to a man named Ashpenaz. It says, then the king ordered or instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuch. So uh, the deportation process is delegated to Ashpenaz. And you might ask the question, why Ashpenaz? How come Nebuchadnezzar doesn't oversee this? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come into Jerusalem, but he will not remain there long because word is sent to him that his father, Nabal Palaser, has died. And he needs to get back to Babylon to secure his empire and be crowned king. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to travel 500 miles in about two weeks, which is pretty incredible. But he's going to go back. So he is going to be in Babylon, and he tells Ashpenaz, you're in charge of the deportation, okay, of this first deportation. Now, we're told here that Ashpenaz is the master of his, of his eunuchs. Um, it, it's, it's the master, the word master there is really the idea of the first of, the first of, and so it's like Ashpenaz is the second in command. He's only under Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody else is under him. He's the first of everybody who's under Nebuchadnezzar. And it says he's the master of the eunuchs. And so this raises the question, what's a eunuch? Some of our Bibles say the chief or master of the officials. Well, in English, the word eunuch refers to a male who has been emasculated or castrated or who is unable to reproduce. 
So Jesus uses the Greek equivalent in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, to talk about a man who could not have offspring. And so people attach this to, there's a little bit of a legend that goes around that if you were in the king's court and you were a eunuch, that means you've been emasculated. That's not right. That's not right. The word here, the Hebrew word here, saris, does not, does not refer to that. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 36, and in chapter 39, verse 1, it refers to Potiphar. Potiphar's married, and the use of this word in reference to Potiphar is in reference to his position. We also know that this word in Hebrew, saris, actually comes from an Akkadian word, which is a related language. But the Akkadian word means he who is of the king's head. And, and we would kind of put it this way in English. The one who sits in the king's court. The one who sits in the king's court. So it's talking about a, a royal official. A royal official. A high government official. So this man, Ashpenaz who has been given the responsibility to oversee the deportation and, and take these Jews captive it is the chief of the high government officials of Babylon that are in Jerusalem. Now, that's who Ashpenaz, Ashpenaz is. Now let's look at the description of the ones who are deported. The description of the ones who are deported. This is still in verse 3. And down to the beginning of verse 4. It says, um, <clears throat> He commanded Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, verse 4, youths in whom was no defect, who were good looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. And who had ability? We'll stop right there. So I want you to notice right away that this, this deportation was selective. It says some. Some, not all. Get some of the sons of Israel. Not all the sons of Israel. And that tells us immediately that they are only after a certain select group of people. That's important to notice. Also, keep in mind that we see here there are four areas of qualification that these deportees must meet. So the select group has qualifications. So Ashpenaz is only going to choose the ones who meet the qualifications to be taken back to Babylon. Four areas. There's a hereditary qualification, there's a physical qualification, a mental qualification, and a psychological qualification. This should not be surprising to us because in part we still do this today. When you join the military today, um, before, well, it was this way, before you ever raise your right hand and repeat the oath, you're sent down to a big military station and you go through a medical evaluation. And they, you take tests. And they're not only evaluating your mental or your, your physical capacity, but your mental capacity. 
They, they, they still do all that. The only thing they don't do that Nebuchadnezzar did was the hereditary test. And so notice these four qualification areas real quick. The hereditary qualification, uh, the ones who were taken had to be of royalty or nobility. Royalty or nobility. Daniel was probably of the nobility. He probably was not royalty. I thought about this. If you're royalty, that means you're related to what key figure? King David. If Daniel was royalty, related, directly related to King David, it would kind of be strange that that's not mentioned. But that's never mentioned. Okay, so he's probably nobility. And being a part of nobility in Daniel's day would also have meant that he was being prepared to take a place in the government of Judah. Part of the job of nobility is that they would become important people and rulers in the government of the country. And because of that, it's very likely that Daniel already had some training. He was already being educated and preparing him to take his place in society at the right time. So there's a hereditary qualification. There's a physical qualification as well. They had to be of the right age, right? They had to be youths, okay? Uh, I won't go through all the details, but this probably means that they're going to be 13 to 15 years old, 13 to 15 years old. So they had to be of the right age. They had to be physically healthy or physically fit. It says in our Bible, no blemish or, or no defect. And that word defect or, or blemish is used in other places of both people and animals. When, it, when we use it with animals in the Old Testament, it's used of the sacrifices. You remember what we learned about the sacrifices when we were talking about the Feast of Israel? It always says an animal with no defect or no blemish. doesn't mean they were absolutely perfect, but they couldn't have anything wrong with them. It's used of people in the same way. The priests could have nothing wrong with them physically for them to do the work of a priest. Um, some of the defects that they weren't allowed, they couldn't be blind. They couldn't be lame. They couldn't be disfigured or deformed. They couldn't even have a broken bone to serve as a priest, okay, to do the work of a priest. That would be a defect. And so when it says here that they have no blemish or no defect, it's just saying they're physically fit. They got all their parts. All the parts are where they're supposed to be and all the parts work right. Okay. Everything's fine physically. And then it has this uh, other qualification related to physical things. And that is they got to look good. Good appearance. Good looking. That's the aesthetic they have to be aesthetically pleasing. We, we might find that odd, but as we read here, we're going to find out that the reason they're being taken to Babylon is for a very special purpose, and part of that purpose requires them to be good-looking. So that's the physical qualifications. The mental qualifications are also three in number. And it says that they have to have the ability to learn, showing insight into every branch of wisdom or gifted in wisdom. They have to already have some kind of knowledge. It says knowing or understanding knowledge. And they also have to be able to break down things into understandable parts. 
discerning knowledge, quick to understand. So they had to be mentally acute. They had to be mentally acute. Uh, They had to be able to learn anything. They had to already have something of an understanding of how knowledge works. They had to be able to dissect things to be able to explain them and learn them. So that's the mental qualification. The final qualification is a psychological qualification. A psychological qualification. We see this in verse 4 where it says, and who had ability, who had ability. That word ability is is talking about the psychological qualification of Daniel and his friends. Um, It's it's the word that we might say, it's, it's talking about aptness, suitability, uh, the correct temperament. And so when Ashpenaz is picking these young men that he's going to take back to Babylon, he's picking the ones that come from the right families. He's, he wants to get the nobility because there's an advantage to having the nobility. He wants to get the young men who are physically fit. There's nothing wrong with them. He wants to get the young men who have the mental capacity for the task that they're going to be given. And he needs to pick the right young men who have the suitability to do what they're going to ask them to do. And so these are the qualifications. They're choosing the right men. Now, we see also here in verse 4 through 5, the purpose and training of the deportees, the purpose and training. It says in verse 4, it says in the middle of the verse, for serving in the king's court. So they're chosen, they got to meet these qualifications, and they have to be able, they have to have the ability to serve in the king's court. So this is their purpose, to serve in the king's court. And then it goes on and it says, and he ordered him... To teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So the purpose for taking these young men is that they can serve in the king's court. They're going to serve before King Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to have a place in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, and they're going to be trained. They're going to be trained. We see that this training is in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They're going to get at the highest level of training that you could possibly have in that day. And this would have been intense training because Daniel and his friends probably knew Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, but when they go to work for King Nebuchadnezzar, they're going to have to know the, the Akkadian language, the Persian language, and probably a little bit of Greek, at least that much. And they would have a lot of reading to do. You know, they, they wrote on little clay tablets back then. That's how they wrote. You could hold them in the palm of your hand. Um, if, you, if you got one of the old big cell phones, it's about that big, Okay. That's about how big it is. And they made these little funny shapes on it. Look like wedges and lines. And King Ashurbanipal of Assyria 
had uh, one of the largest libraries in the world. He was the most powerful king right up to the time where Nebuchadnezzar's father conquered the Assyrians. He was the Assyrian king, and he had this huge library, at least 24,000 pieces, 24,000 volumes in his library. The, the Babylonians got all that, and this would be part of what Daniel had to learn. By the way, most of that library is now in the British Museum, and most of it hasn't even been examined. We don't know what's in a lot of it. Daniel probably would have known what's in most of it. So he's going to receive training. He's going to receive training for three years. King Nebuchadnezzar provides room and board. He gets his food from the king. So this isn't normal cafeteria food, all right? If you went to school, you remember cafeteria food, right? This is not cafeteria food. This is the king's food. It's the best food you could have. And then after three years, they're going to be examined by uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so this is very important that Ashpenaz get the right men for this occupation because it's a very important thing that they are going to have to do. Now, real quick, let's look at the designation of the deportees here as we we come to an end. This is verses 6 and 7, the designation of the deportees. Let me just run through their names. It's this, these two verses are basically a list of names. So let me go through their Hebrew names first. And uh, just note, in Hebrew here, uh, these names are given in alphabetical order. So Daniel's not first because Daniel's the most prominent. Daniel's first because his the, the first letter of his name is the first in the alphabet, and it goes in alphabetical order. So here's the, so we have Daniel, uh, Donnie L, Donnie L, which means God is my judge. God is my judge. Then we have Hananiah, Hananiah, or Hananiah, which means the Lord, Yahweh, is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. Then thirdly, we have Mishael. Mishael. Who is what God is? Who is what God is? It would be like us saying, who's like God? Who is like God? Who is what God is? Then finally, there's Azariah. Azariah. The Lord helps. Yahweh helps. And these four young men, we don't, there's more than four, okay? Ashpenaz is going to choose more than four, but we know these four. We know these four, and we know them by name. These four, when they get to Babylon, they're given Babylonian names. So Daniel gets the name Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar, which means protect his life, protect his life. Hananiah is given the name Shadrach, Shadrach, which means something like under the command of Aku. Aku was the moon god. Under the command of Aku, Shadrach. And then there's Mishael. He gets the name Meshach. Meshach, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Meshach means who is what Aku is. Remember, Meshach's Hebrew name means who is what God is. Who's what Elohim is. Here it's who is what Aku is. And then there's Abednego. This is the name Azariah receives. 
And his name means servant, servant of Nebo or Nabu. So servant of Nabu, the second highest Babylonian god. In each case, the Hebrew name of these young men refers to the one true and living God, and the Babylonian name refers to a pagan Babylonian god. And this is more than just changing their names to fit in the culture. What the Babylonians are doing with these young men is they are removing from them one of the most basic, one of the most foundational, one of the most stable things that connected them to Israel. And that is their God. Their names no longer have God in it. They go by totally different names. Names with pagan gods in it. So their whole connection to the Lord is trying to be erased by the Babylonians. So we can say this is pretty dark days. We're presented here in these verses with a situation where we find that the world that Daniel and his companions had been in is turned upside down. Everything they knew, everything they relied upon, everything they counted on, everything that made their lives stable, regular, it's all been taken away. These young men were born during a time of relative prosperity and peace for Judah, during the reign of King Josiah. They were born into prominent families. They had a bright future. And all of that came crashing down when King Josiah went out one day to stop the Egyptians, and he was killed. And after that, here come the Babylonians. So now all of Judah is thrown into a circumstance where they have no control over their destiny. They don't even have control over their everyday life. They are powerless. And on top of that, the Babylonians are taking the best and brightest of the next generation, and they're taking them to Babylon. This can only be described as a dark and difficult time for every Jew. There is one thing, however, that Daniel and his companions did have in their favor. And this is one thing that the Babylonians could never take away from them. And that one thing was they were born and raised under King Josiah. And that meant they grew up at the feet of the law. They grew up being taught the Bible. Their parents would have come of age under King Josiah and the Bible would have been important to every family in Israel. And this spiritual upbringing will have a profound effect, a profound effect on the behavior of these four boys when they get into Babylon. So I want us to remember three quick things, three quick things here as we close. Number one, difficult and hard times are not unique to us or our world. Difficult and hard times are not unique to us or our world. A lot of times 
we tend to think, woe is me, I have it so hard, nobody's ever had it as bad as I have it today. That's not true. That's not true. There have been difficult times in the world before we existed, and there will be even greater difficult times in the world uh, right before the Lord comes. Hard times today are not unique to us. Daniel experienced a very hard time. Second thing I want you to remember is that men are God's means. Men are God's means for accomplishing his will. That means as Christians, we have purpose and responsibility. You know, today there's lots of people who are out there wandering around, wondering what their purpose is in life. They're trying to find themselves, right? Now the people are even getting up into their 40s and some into their 50s, and they still haven't found themselves. They're looking for purpose. As a Christian, we know we have a purpose because men are God's means for accomplishing his will. We know God wants to use us. He doesn't have to use us. He wants to use us. Thirdly, I want you to remember God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word. If he says, this is what I'm going to do, that's exactly what's going to happen. God is true and faithful. He will do what he says he will do. Therefore, we can trust him. We can trust him in the hard times, the difficult times. We can trust him in the dark times. Do you trust him? Do you trust God? Do you trust God in your hard times? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah will have to trust God in Babylon. They're going to have to trust God with their lives. They did. They trusted him. God was faithful to them, and we can trust God. God wants us to trust him. He wants you to trust him, and he wants you to be active in his plan for the, his, his plan for the world. The question is, Will you trust him, and are you willing to be used by him? Let's stand, and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We're thankful for Daniel and his friends that we see here in this these seven verses. Lord, as we look at his life, we ask for insight. Help us to understand how Daniel, and what you have recorded here in this book, uh, teach us lessons. Father, we see that you are faithful to your word and what you say you will do, even when it's discipline for your people. We also recognize that it is your purpose to use men to accomplish your will, just like you used Nebuchadnezzar. We want to be used by you to accomplish your will on the earth. We want to be willing, help us be willing, work in our hearts so that we are willing to be used by you. And Lord, we are weak and we are unfaithful people. We need to have our faith grown. Help us to trust in you and help us to be faithful to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.